Hey fam, welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I am your host, Dylan Bowman, and today our guest, John Ray, the ascended trail running star for Hoka, living in Boulder, Colorado. Last year, John was fourth at CCC and then secured a huge victory and course record at the Havilene 100, two performances that have firmly established John in the upper echelon of professional athletes in the sport globally. And now here we are, 2024, and it's Black Canyon Race Week, one of the most competitive events ever to take place on American soil. And John Ray goes in as absolutely one of the favorites to win. And here he is finally on the pod to go long form. This episode is sort of a companion piece to a training video we released today on the Free Trail YouTube channel documenting one of John's final important interval sessions before Black Canyon. Again, that video is up on the Free Trail YouTube channel now, and there is a link in the show notes of today's episode. We talk about the session that we document a bit here, but it's a different type of workout that might influence your own training. So again, make sure either before or after today's episode, you go check out the full video too. It's about nine minutes in length. And in my opinion, it is one of Ryan Thrower's best efforts yet. In this episode, we uh, talk about John's background. We talk about the from runner to racer philosophy that he's focusing on right now. We talk about his team sports background this critical moment in his career as I see it. We talk about his training, flux workouts like those we capture in the video and why they're useful. We talk about the value of hard work. We talk about his PhD work and his career in the environmental space at RMI. Of course, we talk about Black Canyon, not needing a golden ticket, how that might influence his strategy and a lot more. It's a great conversation. And as I said, it is Black Canyon Race Week. So of course, fantasy is open for picks now. We are going 10 deep this year, representative of the density of talent in this year's fields. Hoka is putting up great prize packages for the top three predictors. So go get your crystal balls out and go get your picks in fantasy.freetrail.com. Of course, Free Trail will also be on site at Black Canyon. We'll do one or two pre-race shows. We haven't quite dialed that in yet, but those will be Thursday and or Friday. And we'll do a post-race wrap-up show on Sunday. Those are all gonna be hosted also on the Free Trail YouTube channel. We will likely put the audio here in the podcast feed. Also, myself, Corinne Malcolm, are going to be there. We're probably going to be joined by 2019 champion Matt Daniels, maybe some other special guests as the American trail running world descends upon Arizona for this early season classic event. Before we get to the episode, make sure you do check out the show notes for hot, hot deals. Our presenting sponsor, Speedland, and of course, our other great partners, Rourke Apparel, Gnarly Nutrition, Osprey Packs, Big Gratitude for their support. Again, there's links and discount codes here in the show notes. Hope you enjoy the episode. We'll see you in Arizona. The Free Trail Podcast is presented by Speedland and the all-new GS Oak. The pink, purple, and black just might be my favorite colorway yet of the GS platform that is now in commission number three. Of course, there was my shoe, the GS Tam, the Cam Haynes shoe, the GS PGH, and now the GS Oak, done in collaboration with fellow indie trail brand, Path Projects, and with design inspiration from Speedland athlete, my good buddy, Liam Lonsdale. All three of the GS models are primo products. You may have seen David Goggins recently trash-talking Cam Haynes with a pair of the GS PGH on Instagram. 
That was pretty surreal. I still see a ton of people out on the trails rocking the GS Tam, and now the GS Oak is already more than 50% sold out, and you know the deal. Once they're gone, they're gone for good, no restocks, so you better jump on it now. 2024 is gonna be a huge year for Speedland. If you've never tried the brand, there is no better time than now. The world's most high-performance, most durable, and most stylish trail shoes. As always, Free Trail listeners get 10% off by using code FREETRAIL10 at checkout. Head over to runspeedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10. John Ray, welcome to the Free Trail Podcast, buddy. Thanks for doing this. Devo, thanks for having me. It's going to be really fun. Glad to be here. Hey, we need to establish something here at the beginning before we get to our traditional opening question, and that is that it's John Ray, not John Rea, right? Is this something is you've John been Ray. dealing with? <laughs> yeah. You know, I was taught going to any place where people were taking our names, but I'm, like my dad would show up and he, would, he wouldn't even pronounce it. He'd just pronounce it R-E-A. Uh, so... <laughs> John Ray. I was going to say, you know, the Stingray could be a good nickname that would make this confusion disappear overnight. But I think there's a Filipino trail runner right now who already has that nickname. So it's taken. So we'll have to come uh, up with a different one for you. But John Ray, thanks so much for coming on the show. My traditional opening question, what makes you, you? I feel like I've, I should be getting older and maturing, but the the two ways in which I still think about myself are one as a little brother and two as a student athlete. Um, I have four older siblings and one younger sibling. So of course that gave me the identity of being a little brother. Um, but I think I've maintained sort of that style of going through life of like looking for people who are a couple years older than me. I've definitely found most of my running friends just happen to be a little bit older than me for whatever reason. Um, and looking to people for advice and yeah. So I just like identify as being that little brother and I'm still in that, in that mode, um, where I feel like I'm good at taking advice from other people and acting on it and living, uh, living out something else that like if someone else has set an example that I can follow it. But then I'm like really bad at decision making, I think is the the downside where I always need someone else's approval to actually go ahead and make a final decision. Um, and then on the student athlete side, that was just like, I still love like the perfect day in a life to me is still like wake up morning, shoot around basketball practice, go to school, school ends, you go to your full practice then you go home some family time and then you do your homework and that's the end of the day. Like that's just still the ideal day for me. Mm. And I've sort of continued it all the way beyond school and just keep doing the same thing. So good. John Ray, the little brother and the student athlete. To start things off, one of the things that you mentioned when we were together in Boulder is that your personal focus at the moment is transitioning from runner to racer. I spoke to your coach, Adam St. Pierre, on the phone last night, and he mentioned that the runner to racer philosophy was born out of the duel that you had with Dakota Jones at the 2022 Havelina 100. So please explain the runner to racer ethos that you're embodying right now and remind people how your battle with Dakota Jones contributed to it. 
Yeah, maybe for a longer backstory, I played baseball and basketball growing up and I played baseball in college, but wasn't going to do it after college. And so it was like a lot of post-collegiate athletes just stopped doing their sport and, you know, their athletic career sort of dies. And I was sort of at peace with that. I knew I wasn't good enough to make it to the major leagues and that was okay. And I like didn't need to do that. It was still a good time. And so I started trail riding just because it was really fun. Um, I had like done a year of cross country in high school, but I wasn't that good at it. So I was like, okay, other people are faster than me. I can play sports. Uh, I'm not like a real competitive racer. People were just like faster at running than me. I still like doing it. And especially on trails, it was really fun. So my start in running was just that of like adventure, having fun. I'm like good enough that it was still, it felt nice to be, you know, above average, but I wasn't like competing for the win at any races. Mm -hmm. So over time, just like working at it and having fun, making progress and then getting to the point where I actually could compete with bigger names. And then Dakota Jones, clearly a bigger name, well-established in the sport and running like next to him for pieces of the Havoline hundred was like in my head for sure. Um, I didn't, he, I think he was out of sight in the the middle of the race, probably like laps, lap three or something like that. He went ahead of me and like, I didn't see him again, but then at the very end of lap four, I passed him while he was taking a pee break. <laughs> and so like all of a sudden, like he stopped moving. And so that's why I was in front of him <laughs> and he pops out of the, behind the bush and says, wait, who are you? And I was like, oh, okay. He's about to like <laughs> figure out who I am and like, that you're in the same race you're not in the 100 a real real threat or something to him (laughs) uh but we ran into headquarters together at the end of lap four and i had just moved up through the field during that race and i was like whoa this is a big deal i just passed dakota jones at mile 80 of a 100 mile race like this is a moment that i i don't know what to do about this actually like am i supposed should i have waited longer before passing him am i supposed to like make a big burst right now to, to drop him and go ahead. Like what, what am I supposed to do? I was just like lost. I was just like trying to run to the finish line as fast as I could, but oh, the situation was just like new and foreign to me, mm-hmm. but Dakota definitely knew what he was doing. <laughs> uh, because as soon as we left headquarters and had 20 miles left in the race, he like went past me on the way out and said, see you out there. And I was like, yeah, yeah, cool. Like, so yeah, out there, we're going to run this together. But then I didn't see him again the entire race. Like, <laughs> I was just chasing him for the next 20 miles and he was out of sight. And so, uh, yeah, that taught me something that like, you can just rise to another level. Like he w- he seemed like he was hurting a little bit. Um, but the competition and like me catching up to him sort of woke, woke him up and flipped a switch in his head. And I just watched him kick and like he had the guts to start his kick 20 miles from the finish line to make that move. And I was scared to do that or to match him. And I didn't know what I was doing, but watching him do that just was like, whoa, like he's not out here just to like get to the finish line as fast as he can. Or like, he's not just like, oh, I'm going to try my best. And that's, that'll be what it is. No, he's like actually trying to race and you can go to a different level when you're motivated by racing. And so that was really 
cool to witness. And I wasn't even, I wasn't mad about it. I was just like, Whoa, how did you yeah. do that? <laughs> yeah. What yeah. a great development moment and opportunity for you. It reminds me actually a moment of a moment in my career at the inaugural run rabbit run 100. I got passed by Carl Meltzer at mile 70, 75 in the middle of the <laughs> night when I was in the lead of the race. And of course, Carl Meltzer, one of the icons of the history of the sport, the winningest hundred miler ever. And I've always related it to basically, you know, uh, reading out of a hundred mile race execution textbook, having Carl Meltzer pass you at mile 75 of a hundred. This is similar with Dakota and yeah, what a great, yeah. Opportunity to just have that front row seat and learn what it means to go from runner to racer. This is great. Sets a great foundation for the rest of the conversation. Now going back in time, reconnecting with John Ray, the little brother. I know you grew up in the Bay Area. You're the fifth of six children. You mentioned to me that your siblings are really important to you and that you've drawn a lot of inspiration for them. So for the listeners, just give us a glimpse of your upbringing and the relationship that you have with your family. Yeah, my family's super high-performing, very well-educated, all student-athletes. Both my parents got PhDs at Stanford and then just moved across the street and live in Palo Alto. They've still, they're still in the same house. They're about to retire, although my dad's retirement just got delayed. So <laughs> who knows when it'll actually happen. <laughs> uh, but yeah, my older siblings were definitely the, the biggest teachers of me. Like my parents didn't even have to do that much parenting because I could just follow in the footsteps of my older siblings and they were doing good things. So it was just trying to do what they're doing. Um, my, I have two, two of my older sisters went to Princeton. Uh, my older brother was an all American at, at Santa Clara and then played a couple years of minor league baseball, with the Oakland A's organization, like all of us just like worked hard in school, got good grades and played multiple varsity sports. And so that yeah, was just what we all did. And so I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. I was just trying to trying to be like my older siblings. <laughs> so interesting. But six kids is a lot. And even if you love each other, obviously kids compete for attention and affection, maybe even resources sometimes. Is that where your competitive instinct was born? Were you guys always competing with each other as you grew up playing a lot of sports and achieving a lot academically? I think, okay, definitely yes. Uh, I think I did the most competition with my little brother. <laughs> And that, so that taught me how to, how to win at things, <laughs> uh, whether it required cheating a little bit or, uh, just setting the rules, <laughs> but I mean, that is the same as cheating, but that was the most competition with my little brother just cause we were like same gender and we were three years apart. And so I, would, I was playing with him in the backyard for the most part. And my older, older siblings, like Susan, Anthony, Jennifer was, they were all more towards the mentorship side rather than like peers competing in the backyard. Mm. Um, like with my older brother, I would, I would stand like 20 feet away and throw a wiffle ball as hard as I could when I was like five years old. And then he was like the high school kid who was practicing hitting fastballs yeah. from that close. Um, so that wasn't a competition cause I was just so much younger than him, mm. but, um, definitely with my little brother. Um, so one of the things that we have in common is that we're team sport guys. 
finding running later in life, especially compared to a lot of the guys that you're going to be racing against next weekend and throughout your career, fill the listeners in a little bit more on your team sport background and talk about maybe how it's set the foundation for this great running career that you're cultivating. Yeah. Uh, growing up, it was just baseball and basketball tried at soccer, but then dropped that after like sixth grade or something like that. But we'd make up new games and new sports in the backyard too. Uh, so just like always outside and playing games. Um, I wanted to follow my brother's footsteps because he was the one who played professional baseball. So that's why like baseball was the, the vision and the single choice um, that I felt like would have the most likely chance of, of, of making it, you know, being Dustin Pedroia or some, like some other small second baseman, like there's, there's some real possibility you could get there, but basketball was probably more fun. So that was like the other sport that I played it throughout high school. Um, and then I just played like intramural pickup basketball in college, but baseball was what I got to continue at MIT. Um, for those four years. And at MIT, you have school records for being hit by a pitch and for sacrifice bonds, two pretty obscure base, baseball statistics. <laughs> but I think it says something interesting maybe about your character. I mean, what it suggests to me is that you're a team guy, you're a locker room guy, you're not afraid to make sacrifices for the greater good. Is that a fair assessment or is there anything else that those stats are representative of when it comes to, you know, your your personal character? Yeah, I hope it shows that I'm a good teammate, but it also probably just shows that I wasn't good enough to hit home runs. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm yeah, coach is going to give me the bunt signal instead of the home run signal. Cause I can't do that. <laughs> but yeah, I came into MIT thinking I was going to be this hotshot, like set the school record in stolen bases and get all these extra base hits. And then I know I was not that exceptional. I was fine, but <laughs> Well, I mean, you got school records, dude. Come on. Sacrifice <laughs> bonds are important, man. I mean, it contributes to the team and hopefully puts a few more wins in the, or, you know, a few more check marks in the W column, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, we won a lot of games. We went to the, the NCAA regional tournament three out of four years, and we, like, we would win 65% of our games or something like that, which is pretty good for baseball. So we had, like, a, a really good stretch while I was there. That was really fun. Yeah. Before we move off the the family and the sibling stuff, I think it would be interesting to also hear you talk about how your siblings have reacted to you finding this career as a professional runner. Obviously, that was probably something that they didn't anticipate growing up as a basketball and a baseball player. And I know that at least one of your brothers has helped to pace you through a couple of races. So talk about their reaction to the success that you've discovered with endurance sport and, and how they've maybe contributed to it. My older sister has paced me for the last six miles of Western States twice now. And then my little brother paced me from Forest Hill to Green Gate last year as well. So I've used them as pacers. That was such a special experience. Um, I think their perspective on it was similar to mine that it like slowly emerged over time. It was like, okay, John's in Colorado going to grad school. He started doing this trail running. That's cool. I guess he's like getting fit and getting pretty good at it. Like, that's fun. Like glad he found something to do post post college. Like he's happy. That's good. 
but then it's, I start winning a couple of races and it's like, okay, that's cool. And then like, I get this golden ticket at Bandera and then it's like, okay, that's maybe piquing more interest. Um, and so it's like each time I've done something to like level up, um, I feel like one more new person in the family gets inspired and goes like, Oh wait, this is cool. Maybe I'm going to get into this too. So like my sister paced me first and then my little brothers now run a couple ultra marathons. And then, uh, I was super proud that my older brother, I think was the most inspired by last year. And he's always the best athlete in the family. He's like the professional athlete, but he was the one who said, man, I think you're the best athlete in the family now. And I was so, so honored by that. I still don't think it's true because he's still going to be the best athlete in the family forever. But. Come on, this this family seems completely ridiculous. You're like the Manning family in some ways, but even smarter, right? The Stanford, MIT, Princeton, we got professional baseball players, we got professional runners. The, Definitely they're much more more under the radar than the Manning than family. Than the Manning but. family, but <laughs> they just produce quarterbacks and they don't even go to the top institutions, the top academic institutions, that is. Coming back to present day, one of the things that I've been thinking about that is that just like, I feel like you're at a really important moment in your career. You were fourth at CCC last year. You won and broke the course record at Havelina. You're going into Black Canyon now as one of the favorites, the most competitive golden ticket race in the history of the sport in all likelihood. And you're in your prime years athletically. How are you thinking about this particular moment and maybe this particular season? I'm really appreciating it. It's been super fun and it's been a recurring theme on runs with friends recently that other friends have been telling me, wow, it's like so cool to see your progression that like you've just gotten so much better. Now you're at this level and we're all so excited for you. And so those have been really fun reminders that this feels like a special moment that I've, I've gotten a lot better and, um, I still want to keep getting better, but I'm really appreciating where I am now that it's def I've definitely gotten so much more out of running both experientially, but also achievement wise than I thought I would have when I started. Um, there's still a big part of me that, you know, like caveats it with, this is still a niche sport. I could not hang with anyone at the Olympic marathon trials, um, if as many people were trying to be good at trail running as they are at other sports, then I would not stand out. And so that's like a quick, like <laughs> ego check that like, look, I'm like, I think I'm decent at it compared to the existing field and to this point in time, but also anything I do now is probably going to be pretty unimpressive to the next generation, like 10 or 20 years from now, they're going to look at my times or whatever I've done and be like, that was good back then. Like what? Um, <laughs> so, so I'm, how do you think I, think I feel, bro? Come on. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely proud. It's really, it's, it's really fun. It's really motivating. Um, and I want to, to keep doing it. It feels really special to, to be trying to be one of the top runners in the U S I, I, I definitely don't consider myself to be like, <laughs> thinking too much about the global stage yet. I'm still trying to like establish myself in the U S I think, but, um, 
Dude, you finished yeah, fourth place matter. at CCC last year. That's one of the most competitive races in all likelihood that's ever happened. You were obviously, like I said, broke the course record at Havelina, one of the older hundred milers in the U.S., proof that you are among the best in the world. Did those two performances in particular maybe change how you viewed your own capabilities? Yeah, CCC for sure. It because I was so surprised. Uh, like I just surprised myself. I was going into that race thinking, like, oh my god, like I don't know what I'm doing here. This is my first international race. All these Europeans have a different style of racing. There's so many good runners. I'm just going to get lost, and I could have a great day and be in 50th place, and it won't matter. And that would be really demotivating. Maybe that's like I think that's the reason why I chose. Like I'm why I'm pursuing trail running as opposed to other sports is basically can be special in it. Um, but, but going into CCC, I didn't expect to be special in it. Um, Mm -hmm. at least not fourth place. That was, uh, that was better than I was hoping for. And so it did, it did shift my mind that like, yeah, I guess I'd run with Dakota before. And so he still beat me by a couple minutes again, but I'd run with the Drew Holman also like we're neck and neck a couple of times now. But yeah, never know exactly how a local race will translate to an international race. And I don't know, maybe these other guys just rise to a different level when they do these bigger scale races. Like I saw Dakota just flip a switch and go to a different mindset. And maybe there's just, you know, these practice local races, the quad rock 50 or 25 or something like that. If I can compete with those guys there, then maybe they'll still crush me at a real race. I was planning to get to this later, but why don't we just touch on it now while we're on the subject of CCC, what we see in the video, which our audience can go watch on YouTube by the time this conversation is up is you describe a moment where your coach, Adam St. Pierre delivers a one word race plan to you. That race plan is compete explain how that landed for you in the moment and what significance maybe it's had in the months since CCC. It was so useful that that was just so simple. I am liable to overthink a lot of things. And so just simplifying it and being like, what is the, what the, like if I'm trying to make a decision or second guess myself or, figure out what to do or decide how I'm feeling. It was just like, what is the response to that feeling or that thought that represents the word compete? And so that was just so useful and centering to be like, here's your one focus, just like do the compete thing. Like don't worry about judging anything else other than just trying to compete. Um, And that also made it feel like it was a little more of a sport (laughs) Uh, like running, it was like a fitness thing, you know, like you try to run fast and you get to the finish line and like whoever's fitter wins, but it's, it is a little more fun to have some race dynamics and to move up and back and have different strengths and weaknesses and different sections of the course. And to be thinking about the other runners in the race. And that turns it a little bit more from a fitness activity to a sport. And I, and I like sports more, so I'm, down for trail running to become like a real sport. <laughs> and that's the, that's what the word compete did for me. How does that manifest though? I mean, give us a practical example as you're moving up in the field at CCC, you find yourself sort of in fourth place. You got Dakota just ahead of you. You got Drew Holman and Seth ruling just behind you. You got this train of Americans. 
how does the the compete word and philosophy show up in those moments? I was really scared of the start line that it was just going to be so overwhelming that everyone's going to go out and run like sprint off the start line and go super hard. And I was not going to be able to handle that, but it was like, no, like, yeah, you're going to slow down runner later in the race. This is just the opening move and there will be different phases of the race. And so what does it look like to compete right now? It looks like running that pace that everyone else is running at the start line. And then the second moment was, maybe in like an hour and a half into the race, like you've done the first climb and a mile or two after the first descent, John Albin caught up to me because he had, he had taken the first climb pretty patiently and he just passed by me like slowly, gradually. And that felt like a really big decision moment of like, am I just going to let him go? Or like, what is he going to do? Maybe I can learn from following him a little bit. And I don't know if it's a bad decision for me to try to keep up with John Albin because I know he's probably going to win this race. <laughs> but <laughs> which he maybe did. <laughs> I should try to maybe I should just run with him for a couple miles and maybe I'll at least like witness something and I can learn something from it. So I just latched right behind him and I ran right behind him for a couple of miles before I did let him go. But that was another decision point of like, well, what does it look like to compete? Does it look like just letting him pass me and not thinking about it, or does it mean like latching onto him when he goes? And so that was the second one. And then, yeah, in the second half, that was just like any hesitation I had was like, oh, I just want to want to relax a little bit. This is getting hard. Like, wouldn't it be nice just to, you know, casually jog it in and be happy with where I am now? It was it was nose like Dakota's in front of you. Get him. Go, go, go. Compete, compete, compete. Every time I had a doubt that was like, oh, it'd be nice to relax. It was like, no, compete. Rourke Apparel, back for 2024. Such a cool brand, born from a spirit of adventure and travel, big with the surfing and action sports community. Rourke is now a major player here in trail running. You may remember I did an interview with their founder, Ryan Hitzel, at the running event. I love everything about this brand. Obviously, they make great lifestyle product, but the Run Amok collection is truly great stuff. One thing I've enjoyed recently is the second wind jacket, the perfect windbreaker to bring out on the trail. Of course, I live here in the mild climates of Northern California, and this is my new favorite piece, the perfect extra layer for early morning dawn patrols on chilly winter days. But I could also see this being a great 12 month a year piece, a coastal windbreaker or the perfect lightweight layer for summer adventures in the Alpine. Wherever you're ripping, Rourke's got your back. And as a free trail listener, you can get 15% off. Just go to Rourke.com. Use promo code FREETRAIL15. That's R-O-A-R-K.com. Use code FREETRAIL15. This episode is brought to you by Osprey. Super excited to be working with this iconic Colorado brand, the market leader in technical outdoor and travel packs, celebrating its 50th anniversary in 2024. One of my favorite podcasts of last year was the How I Built This with Osprey founder Mike Fotenhauer, an incredible story of design and innovation, which remains a core part of Osprey's DNA to this day, and that they're now focusing on the trail running category. You guys will absolutely love these trail running packs. I promise the Duro and Dyna are the men's and women's options respectively with an extremely robust product selection for runs of all types, quick lunch runs to multi-day suffer fests. I've been rocking the six liter Duro vest and absolutely love the fit, the function, the durability, 
born in the San Juans, trusted by top athletes like Tyler Green and Rachel Drake. You gotta check out these products to make them even better. Osprey's full line are also sustainably crafted with blue sign approved, 100% recycled main body materials. Again, making them a leader in the category. Head over to Osprey.com to check it out. Grab a bag. That's Osprey.com. Or chances are you can find Osprey products also at your favorite local specialty mountain shop or run store. Thanks so much to Osprey. It's such an elegant race strategy, right? Just the single word. And it has nothing to do with an outcome or with even like a strategy. It's more of just like a feeling, right? Of just like in this moment, am I putting myself in a competitive posture, right? I just think it's a something that I would like to implement into my own racing. Coming back to what you just said about appreciating the moment that you're in right now. Say more about that because I just had Andrew Bumbleo on the podcast too. And we were sort of reminiscing about his professional road and track career. And one of the things that he said is that he wished he would have appreciated some of the highs. He always felt like, you know, there's another mountaintop out ahead. There's another huge accomplishment to be had without necessarily appreciating those moments. And I think for you, as I identified, this is an important moment and an important year, right? And so the balance between appreciating where you are, but also wanting to further establish yourself as one of the best in the world. Anything you want to say about that? I've been gradually getting better every year for the last 10 years. Like I've been doing it for a pretty long time now. And every time I get a little bit better and think I can run a workout with a few seconds per mile faster or get a higher place at the next race, it just resets your expectations. And then there's another next thing. And having gone through that cycle, like (laughs) 10 years in a row, makes me feel like I don't, I'm not sure there is an end to that. Like if you achieve more, then you just reset your goals higher. And then you, then you, if you can get that, then you just set your goals higher and you're always yearning for something you don't have. And then that's like a terrible mindset for happiness. Uh, My former roommate and college friend, Joe, like on repeat would just tell us like, guys, happiness equals, reality minus expectations. So like set your expectations a little bit lower and just really appreciate what you have. Um, and so that can be, there's like a tension there because like you want to have high ambition and it's, well, I don't know, there's no need to have high ambition. Like, I don't know, plenty of people don't and they're happy and it's fine. Like, I don't know. I'm not sure why it's necessary to like always want to. In fact, it may make you miserable in a lot of cases. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that's worse. I don't know. Um, But I am motivated to keep trying to get better and see what that end point is. But I also know that that can be like really dangerous and like over obsessing. Like everyone who goes to the Olympics is really depressed afterwards. And, you know, like just when I had a visions of playing professional sports when I was playing in my backyard as like an eight year old, like I didn't think about like it not being good enough to be Dustin Pedroia. Like he's not the MVP of the league every year, but like, I still want to be him. Like it's, it's like, that's good enough just to be in the league and playing the game. Mm. And of course he's always trying his hardest. He's always 
doing his best and I want to keep doing that. Um, but I know it's a never ending cycle where like every time you get to another level, you'll just, you can, you can keep resetting the bar and it's a moving goalpost and that's not a fun life. Um, I'd rather appreciate where I am, keep working as hard as I can. Like I'm, I don't, I, it's possible that that will hold me back and make me not try hard enough, but I don't think that's a huge risk. I think my natural inclination is to try too hard and getting myself to hold back a little bit actually leads to better results usually. Mm. So, so I'm like hanging on to that a little bit. Maybe you see, like, I feel like I, I should be unsatisfied, but I don't know. Recently I have been extra satisfied with it. Um, and like, I just like want to be in this place and like the grow, like continue being this place of growing and still getting better, um, for a while, but to make sure I don't over obsess and just like make life terrible for myself and for Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) So then meditate on the value of hard work in and of itself. You had mentioned something about this in an email exchange that we were having. You use the example, especially of, you know, getting into MIT and it was born out of just like trying hard in math and science classes when you were coming up and that a lot of the times, you know, the, the value is in the effort itself. Say a few words about that. Yeah, that's definitely pretty woo woo, but I I do believe it that, um, the value is in the hard work, not an achievement. Um, and most of the things that I, I'm most proud of doing in my life were not goals that I had originally that like, I didn't know what the end point of taking hard, like the AP classes and doing my best in school and high school was going to be. I didn't know what college I could get into. I didn't know what it would lead to, but I did know it was worth it to try hard. Even with an unknown, uncertain outcome that the harder you work, the more opportunity you create for the future. And you don't need to know or have a specific vision of what that success looks like to know that putting in a little extra effort now will lead to something good. And it's okay for you to not know what that something is. And so I've had that experience both through like school in trying to get into colleges. And then um, now with running that like, I didn't, think that I was going to be able to win any of these races when I started trail running. I just like wanted to get a little bit better each year and, you know, it's been really rewarding and cool to to actually reach this point just through appreciating, like trying to get better and growing. I love that. The harder you work, the more opportunity you create for the future. Let's talk about some of that hard work. Training. This podcast is, of course, a companion piece to the training video that we did with you in Boulder. It's probably about what a week or 10 days ago now. And in the video, you talk about how you've been doing three workouts a week, sometimes obviating long runs altogether. It's, you know, sort of counterintuitive, especially for somebody who's training for a 60 mile race. So maybe give the listeners a sense of what you and Adam St. Pierre have been working on together and why. Yeah, I think I would have been doing similar training regardless of whatever race I was going to do. Just like winter training looks like more speed work and I've always had more of a longer term view on the outcomes of training rather than it thinking about it just in the context of the race that I'm about to go into. Like I'm bringing 
to Black Canyon this year, not just the last eight to 10 weeks of training. I'm bringing the really big training block I did before Western States last April and May. And I'm bringing the like extra winter runs I did three years ago. Like those all matter for the long-term growth. Um, so I think the long-term growing it just for me is still these like faster workouts. Um, and so trying to get more workouts in during the winter is just going to set me up for success in future races, not necessarily only thinking about short-term. I think it'll have short-term benefits and make me more prepared for Black Canyon, but also for the longer, uh, longer term as well. Um, but yeah, I haven't done that many like weeks in a row with this many workouts ever. I don't think I've usually just done like, yeah, one or two workouts per week. Um, but this recent last couple months have been doing like workouts on Saturdays instead of long runs as mm -hmm. an extra third workout. And so it's been a lot of speed work. Um, it's probably more necessary for me than for some of the, like any runners who have like a fast running background, but it's been really fun. It keeps it entertaining. I love doing 200 meter repeats. Like you just get to be a kid and play and don't think that hard, but just like run fast. Um, so that's really fun. Um, and then, so one of the, in the workout video that is getting released along with this, it was like a mix of the, of multiple workouts. Like not all of them looked exactly the same. I've been yeah. doing maybe half of my workouts on the track, maybe slightly more than half recently, but like on an annual basis, probably only like a, a third of them are on the track. Okay. Um, but the archetype of doing a short sprint and then that, I think that's useful for improving my form, which I'm still working on. And I've always been like worse at sprinting than endurance compared to peers. Yeah. You're critical so, of your form. When we posted that reel, you texted me about your foot placement or something like that. Yeah. I, I'm looking for improvement for sure. Uh, I don't think I look the most pretty as a runner. Oh, there's, come there's, on, dude. As somebody but, who is chasing you around that track, you looked, you looked like a gazelle to me. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I'm getting more with this video. gives me some more attention than I've had in the past, I think. And so it makes me a little more self-conscious probably, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think form form improves from doing the track work and speed work. And it's just, I like a balance between track workouts where everything is super measurable and it keeps you really honest and you can measure growth or like, you know, whether yeah. or not you're having a good, a good or a bad day, but also it makes you work. One of the things that specifically on things, whereas, and then in some trail workouts where it's just, you know, based on time and you don't have a segment of trail that you know really well. And you're just like, you can't really judge whether or not you're doing well or not during the workout. And that judgment free workout can be really useful too. And so I like having some workouts where I'm like super on and have to be measured and somewhere I can just go and feel. Oh, that's a great takeaway for the listeners too. One of the things that Adam said to me last night was the track doesn't lie. So it is the type of workout where you can judge yourself objectively each and every time you step off the track, right? Whereas on trail, maybe they're judgment-free workouts to use your terminology. One of the things that also stuck out to me when I was with you in Boulder and that shows up a little bit in the film is the intentionality with which you approached your warm-up and your cool-down. 
like the the process you went through just to get ready for the workout took a long time (laughs) and we capture a small piece of it in the video, but maybe say a few words about your process of getting primed for these really critical workouts and also like the recovery decompression afterwards, just because like I said, what stood out to me was that it was very intentional start to finish. Yeah, that's not new either. Like the intramural basketball team would be annoyed with me for like doing a few too more many warm-ups and like stretching too much before we would just like start the game. It's like, can we just start already? And I'm like, oh wait, let me just like finish a couple more stretches or something like that. Um <laughs> but I'm such a habit former that like once I add something to my routine, then it just stays there. <laughs> So my, my habits just like stick really, really strongly. And so like my routine just gets long enough where if I have any kind of PT exercise that I go to, I'm just like, yeah, they just add on top of each other. Um, and maybe if I take them away, I have like a little higher injury risk or something, but probably what just holds me and keeps doing it is the fact that it does just make me feel ready. Um, if I do the same routine, then like, I just know I do my couple laps around the track with my high knees and my butt kicks and my side steps. And then I come to the middle of the field and I do my leg swings and I switch on my shoes and then new shoes. Okay. Workout mode. Um, brain is now ready. Um, I mean, it knows how to go to that place of focus. Um, so hopefully I can do the same thing during a race too, or if I do the basically the same warm up routine, then I can just go to this different mode and my brain goes to like a habit place where I don't have to think that hard. I don't have to, there's no inertia to overcome. It just, it's natural. It just does it. So not only do these PT exercises and activations help you to limber up and get physically primed for the workout, but it also gets you mentally prepared for the inevitable suffering of 200 meter repeats on a track. So coming back to the, the flux workout, uh, strategy, and that was actually the word also that, that Adam used when I talked to him, he said it was something that he picked up from Steve Magnus. It's different from a lot of, it's different from every other video that we've made in our sort of training for series. So I wanted you to maybe talk in a little bit more detail about the flux workouts, because I know this has been kind of the core of the focus, at least when it comes to the intensity component of your training for Black Canyon. So what do we mean by flux workouts? People can obviously see this in the video and what value has it brought into your training and what purpose does it serve? So the term flux means like flow or change. And so it refers to changing in pace and having your body having to go through different physiological changes with that change in pace. It was nice that Adam, the first one he gave me was on the trail. So it was totally based on feel. It wasn't on the track where there's time associated with it, but most of them have looked like a 200 ish meter surge or about a 32nd meter surge at the beginning of an interval. So you start it. It's like, it felt counterintuitive at first to be like, this is a terrible way to pace an interval. Like you don't want to start out hot and then like slow down over time. Like that's fail. That's what failure looks like. Right. But no, we're doing it on purpose where we sprint really hard. And then it seems like right at the end of that 30 seconds or like very soon afterwards is when I get that 
burning sensation in my legs and it feels terrible. Um, but I'm still in the middle of an interval. So I've like started the interval with a 30 second sprint. And then I back off to like a threshold or tempo pace and I'm still trying to maintain pretty high effort, but my body has to flush out all the waste products that were generated by doing that 30 second sprint. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know all the physiology, which is why I have a coach and I just awesome <laughs> and do what he says, yeah. but it like, it's one, it's, it's kind of fun. It's like, gives you new sensations to <laughs> like, just watch and listen to, like, I can't control, like, I don't have a choice. I have to sprint the start of this interval and right. it's going to feel terrible while I'm still trying to run fast, but I guess I'm just going to like <laughs> go through that and it's so cool. You know, I, feel what it feels like, but I feel like, yeah, the, my, I don't know, maybe my body's getting better at flushing lactic acid out of my legs while I'm going up hills or, um, doing surges. And like, it feels like it's going to help prime me to be able to match surges during a race, even though that's like on a very different time scale, like during an ultra, no one's throwing in like a 30 second sprint as their, as their move. <laughs> It's, it's like a 10 minute hill where they try to run fast on it or something like that. But yeah. if that doesn't, I don't know if it translates physiologically, but mentally it definitely will translate that. I have that idea in my head that I can handle a moment of extra hard hardness, even though it was surrounded by hard before or hard after that I can still surge when I'm uncomfortable. Um, and then still be able to handle that and keep going. So, yeah. What Adam said also, just for the listeners, is that basically what it helps you to do is go to the well in the middle of a race. Maybe it's responding to a surge from another athlete. And then, yeah, to be able to recover and maybe give you more matches to burn than the competition. So much like your warm-up and cool-down routine, there's probably a mix of physiological and psychological benefits to these flux workouts. Let's talk about the taper, too, because it's something we were talking about in Boulder. We're one week out from Black Canyon today. You did a three hour, 20 mile run at five o'clock in the morning. I just saw on Strava, we were joking about it before we went live here today. Fill in the listeners on your taper philosophy, because I think this is a little bit unorthodox also. Yeah. I had to get up and start my run at five because I really wanted to make it to the, to the marathon trials watch party at, at scratch. Um, it was worth it. It was a great time. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's a strong philosophy. Um, I feel like a few years ago before having a coach, I would, I just like took recommendations that you're like three weeks out. You're supposed to do one week where you do 60% of your volume. And then the next week you do 60% of that. So you're at like one third of your volume and then it's race week and you just run a, like a couple short runs before your race. And that's what in my mind of what the established taper is. And I don't know if that's actually what everyone else does or if it's actually like a bigger taper than most people. But so I did that for my first few ultras and I just felt like unhappy um, even more so than just like, well, I don't know, like everyone's unhappy during a taper. Not <laughs> me, think. dude. I love tapering. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's fun. My life's yeah. a taper at this point though. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, taper on different time scales and different cycles. Yeah. That's all. Been tapering yeah. for two but, years now. Anyway, keep going. Um, but like my my general happiness matters, and um, 
maybe I would show up to a race slightly more physically optimized or fresh if I did that full three week thing. But I don't, I just feel like my sleep, my sleep, my eating, everything about my life is a little bit happier and a little bit better. If I don't do that full 60%, then 60% of that for the next couple of weeks. So, and I, I don't know, I haven't talked to that much about to Adam about our taper, but I'm noticing that he definitely still like gives me full training all the way through up through at least two weeks up until the race. And then I'll still do workouts and like, um, like three hours is not the longest run I'll ever do, but it's still a decent long run. And I'm, I'm no longer scared of that meaning that I'll show up to the race super tired. Um, I feel like it's still, as long as I don't overdo it on effort yeah. and I take care of the other things, then if I wasn't overreaching during the main block of training, then I don't need to cut it off like really hard mm. leading up to the race. Yeah. I just think it's interesting again, just for the listeners, we're exactly a week out from black Canyon as we're recording this. And I doubt there's many people who are going to be competing for the win next weekend who've done a 20-mile, three-hour run this morning. The very first brand to ever believe in free trail, you guessed it, Gnarly Nutrition. Born in Salt Lake, Gnarly sets the standard when it comes to performance nutrition products. Of course, they have run fueling dialed with Fuel2O, the collab orange drink flavor we formulated together. Gnarly also offers pre-workout blends and extremely dank protein mixes. I am going hard on the protein right now. I'm not going to lie. This aging athlete and podcaster had an evaluation recently and there was one thing that was abundantly clear. I basically needed to double my protein intake. Enter Gnarly Nutrition. I'm now smashing three scoops of the Gnarly Whey protein powder mid-morning every day and already feel way better charging into 2024. For those who are plant-based, Gnarly also offers a vegan option of the same protein powder. And to be honest, I can't tell them apart. So they're equally delicious and you'll have your selection there. Of course, Free Trail listeners get special discounts of 15% off the whole product offering not just protein but everything else visit gonarly.com use code free trail 15 gonarly.com use code free trail 15 coming back to the marathon trials maybe this would be a fun thing to talk about i know it's fresh in your memory um anything from the race any storylines or moments or athletes that inspired you or were there any thoughts going through your head knowing that you're obviously at the doorstep of a, a big race yourself I told myself to remember her name, but I sort of forgot it. Dakota. She was the third place woman. Lundworm? I, Lund so, I yeah, think it's Lund Lundworm, Dakota Lundworm, I think. Yeah, she was the most inspiring racer out there to me. She seems to race with guts, but no ego. And at the finish line, she just, she was, she had surprised herself, but was just, pure joy and appreciation of like her competitors. Like she was proud of the people in front of her. She was, she recognized the people behind her, but she made the team and she surprised herself, but she like won about it in a way that clearly showed some courage and like she stuck in it and went through it and was just like pure joy at the end, which was a contrast to like my baseline on road running is like, you just know 
this is the time that you could run or you're supposed to run. And then you either do that or you're slower and it's a failure. And I, there's less upside to it to me than yeah. in trail running where it feels more often like people surprise themselves or do something that was previously unimagined. And in road running, it's a little too precise and known what the potential is. Yeah. So maybe it's also like the status of the sport that trail running still has a lot of growth to go through and people can make big leaps above what is done in the past, but it's really cool. Also see individuals do that. And Dakota, I don't know her story, but at least what I witnessed in seeing her reaction in the middle and at the end of the race made it seem like she went through that personally. And that was super cool. And yeah. Yeah. What a cool thing. It's too bad. It only happens once every four years, but you're right. I mean, the men's race, there wasn't really surprises, right? Connor and Clayton, the BYU guys came in kind of as the favorites. They finished one, two. And then on the women's side, it was full of surprises, or at least Sisson maybe wasn't a surprise, but the woman who finished first and the woman, uh, the woman who won, it was her first ever marathon. She wins the Olympic trials in third place again. Yeah. Almost an unknown quantity making the Olympic team. This is why sports are just the best, dude. So yeah, maybe maybe we'll see that at Black Canyon. Someone who's it's never like true heart brown, right? Before is gonna is gonna smash it and yeah. like surprise everyone. Everyone's gonna be like, wow, that was awesome. It's so true. Yeah, it's like true heart brown a couple of years ago, right? Uh, cool. Well, before we start talking about Black Canyon, I, I wanted to talk also for a bit about what you do professionally. You're far from a, a one-dimensional professional athlete. Uh, before we get to RMI, tell me a bit about your PhD work and how it set up your professional career and where you are now. I was a mechanical engineer in undergrad, and then I went to grad school for material science, but that was an interdisciplinary program that most of my work was still mechanical engineering. So I got good at doing heat transfer calculations and simulating temperatures and energy flows between blocks of abstract masses. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my, my, my research in grad school was on thermal energy storage. Um, we were trying to build a cheaper battery but using thermal energy storage instead of electrochemical energy storage. So instead of a battery, we would just heat up and cool down a bucket of aluminum, basically like melt and freeze aluminum and transfer that heat into a heat engine that would convert it to electricity. So I was doing like the heat transfer modeling and techno-economic analysis on that system. And then also like building some things in the lab and recently I've been missing the hands-on part of it of like building some things is really cool. That's a great part of engineering. Um, but I felt like the more important side of it was figuring out if this prototype technology were to become a mass market battery that all the electric utilities were using for their energy storage, then what would its cost have to be? How would it be operated? How would it interact with the electric grid? And that led me to RMI, where we work on more of those types of questions on my team of trying to figure out what are the best technologies or like how should they interact? What are the right incentives to get electric utilities to use the best technologies in order to support a low carbon, equitably uh, distributed electric grid? Um, so that was the logical step, it would have been really cool to take my grad school work and do a startup company where we were building these 
buckets of aluminum that were these thermal batteries and that would have been really fun and cool but um i wasn't willing to go out and be the ceo of my own startup company you're still young dude you're still young i know people in the battery space i'll make connections for you yeah yeah it's it's there's a lot of cool technology happening there but um but the other thing about working at rmi where like our our company's mission is to accelerate the energy transition is that we in order to have successful climate outcomes we have to have this happen fast and so a technology that's going to be useful 10 years from now at scale is almost like too late like <laughs> the US needs to have like a zero carbon electric grid like 100% renewable energy by like 2035 and in order for us to limit global warming to 1.5 C as like the, mm. the consensus target that we're aiming for. Yeah. And so it has to happen super, super fast, which means that a lot of the progress and growth has to happen through technologies that already exist. And so that's more what I'm working on now is trying to make sure the electric utilities have the right incentives to, to just do what they can do now as fast as possible, rather than worrying about the last couple percent of carbon emissions at the end of that transition. So good, man. What a worthy thing to dedicate your life to. When we were talking, you mentioned the importance of prioritizing high impact initiatives when it comes to climate change. And the example you use as it relates to the trail running community was like, yeah, going coupless at races is good. It's nice but maybe it's like symbolic or a distraction from more significant actions that we can be taking individually and collectively. Say more about that. I think there's some psychological danger in feeling good about yourself for having taken some positive action that it makes you relax and then do fewer good things elsewhere in your life. And so if you're over-optimizing in one area, that's, not as important, then you're not putting in the right focus on something else that's actually more important. And so that comes up, I think, in like carbon emissions accounting and work at RMI that we don't want to put a ton of effort and a huge project into decarbonizing like some tiny industry that is 0.01% of carbon emissions. Like we need to <laughs> convert internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. Like that's 30 to 30% of us emissions, you know, like the big things matter. And if we worry too much about the little things, then we miss some of those big things. And that doesn't mean that like the little things don't matter. I do so many of those little things in my life, but I try to maintain perspective and not be like too proud of myself for the fact that I recycled my aluminum can. Like that's nice, but even more like, don't forget how important that is relative to the actions you can take in the rest of your life. Yeah. And people will see in the video, but you definitely do practice what you preach. You rode your bike to work. I think you say something to the effect of you pretend like you don't have a car, live as if you don't have a car and then do all the other important things, um, you know, to align your values with your actions. So moving on to black Canyon, obviously we can't not talk about the big race before we sign off here. You, John Ray are one of only a couple, I think is you and Ryan Montgomery. Is there anybody else who are, who's already has a golden ticket or a spot at Western States going in? 
Cole Watson. Cole Watson, right. Okay, so you're in the fortunate position that you do not need a golden ticket. There are dozens of competitors that are going there for that express purpose. How does that impact your mindset and your strategy ahead of the big race? It makes it a less of a zero-sum game where I'm not hoping that everyone else <laughs> rolls their ankle or like forgets their hydration or something like that. Not that I'm ever wishing that on anyone else during a race either, but I can be a little bit less competitive and feel like I'm fighting against everyone else. But it's so cool to have this many good runners in a race where we're working together in my mind to run a fast time and move the the sport forward in, in addition to like the fact that we're trying to beat each other and there are winners and losers. Um, but I get to I get to see more of the people around me as friends, I think, than than like threats is is the way I'm seeing it. Um, I want to run a fast time for sure. And there being a competitive field is going to help make that happen. Maybe it looks like a good day, too. I know there's rain I in the know. forecast, but yeah, the, the weather looks dangerously good. Like fast. there's going to no, gonna be no excuses for yeah. it not to be a fast yeah. race. Like, Which means it likely there's minimizes carnage, too. Yeah, that's what I learned at Western States this year, too, that yeah. like it it would be a mistake to start too slow. Right. <laughs> um, we'll see what this kind of conversation leads to on race day, but <laughs> Yeah, but I but I, I'm looking forward to to running with people and us working together to to move like the sport forward and run a fast time. Um, and I will have the self belief that I can hang in the in the second half. And like I, I'll run through the simulations of like I don't know what to expect, but I'll have a bunch of scenarios in my head that I'll play with and be curious and watching for as the race unfolds. Yeah, because you could take it with one of two approaches, having the golden ticket, it's a flyer, right? You could just take it to the field, assert yourself, push the pace, put people in an uncomfortable position early, or you could race with a little bit more, you know, of a conservative approach and then, yeah, try and hang on, run a fast time, see how, how fast you want to take it. So anyway, it's an interesting position to be in. And I think uh, a lot of people would love to switch spots with you, but uh, yeah, I think you go in as certainly, even if it's crazy deep, I still think there's five to seven guys who have a chance of winning it. And I put you very much in that category. I talked to Adam St. Pierre again, obviously, and we've talked about him a lot here in the podcast and when I asked him sort of what the one word, <laughs> what the one word race plan was, again, reminding our listeners that the one word race plan at CCC was just compete. He said, well, it's not one word, but, you know, go do something historic. So he definitely feels like you're in a, a good spot to, yeah, potentially even lower that course record or put down a historically fast time on the course. Anything you want to say about that, about how you and Adam have been talking about the race strategically or, or what the mantra is going to be going into the race? I haven't fully thought through all of that, but I do think there's a, like a funny bit of incrementalism that happens because like, I mean, Anthony Casales ran a great race last year. What I did is I looked at all of his splits and I'm like, 
I have those down on paper. And so that's my baseline. And so I've been guessing a bunch of other people did the same thing. And so if you take that as your comparison and then just try to improve it a little bit, then you can, you know, you can run a course record or move the time forward just a little bit, step by step, minute by minute. Um, I'm curious what if what would happen and like how high ambitions could get if people didn't do that and they just said like what is what is really theoretically possible um like if someone set themselves a pace chart for black canyon that's gonna go under seven hours like could someone do that i don't know maybe i don't think i can but (laughs) um like it's a different method um so i want to like believe that there's upside um I guess when I'm trying to like motivate myself to believe that there's that big opportunity, I have like this, the managing director of the electricity team at RMI had this quote when I was getting into a project where we were just starting it and we were starting to pitch it to different audiences and get the feedback and response. And her suggestion to our team was make sure you're prepared for wild success. Like, what are you going to do if everyone responds to this and says, whoa, that's the best idea I've ever heard. Can you please spend $10 million on this next year and make it grow as fast as possible? Like know what you're going to do if it's a great day and don't just relax and rest on that. Um, so like I've got the, I've got the downside too, like that, but, but it is fun to think about the upside and maybe I get to do that a little bit more of like <laughs> be prepared for wild success I love that, dude. And it's, again, it's counter, it's counterintuitive. It's an unorthodox approach. And there's a few examples of this and you and how you conduct yourself. And, you know, most people prepare for the downside, prepare for the bad situation. There's a lot of which, value in doing that. Which, which they should do. <laughs> yeah. And I definitely will be thinking about things that could go wrong and how I'm going to like get through it if I have a bad day, which is just as likely, but so, so say again, what she said, be prepared for wild success. Yeah. I love it. My wife said something a couple of years ago, which we continue to use to, to, to this day, which is just what if something amazing happened? And so we've abbreviated it to WISA, W I S A H. So uh, oftentimes when we're sort of in the doldrums, we just, what if something amazing happened, right? Be prepared for wild success. I love it. Yeah, I hope someone at Black Canyon does something amazing. I think it's guaranteed, bro. Uh, if not, maybe a few dozen people will do it. Anyway. Maybe we'll have 50 people run under eight hours. <laughs> okay, so as we start to get close to the end of our conversation here, you posted the other day about big cat mode as we begin to wind down. You're criminally underfollowed on Instagram. We got to get all of our listeners here to go smash the follow button on John's account. I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. But you you talk about big cat mode since you're probably going to be talking to a bunch of new followers today. Expand on what big cat mode is and how you're channeling that energy here in the final week before the race. I stole that idea from my meditation app, <laughs> Headspace, which has a, a competition pack. It's like a 10 days of a 10 minute meditation. And they introduced this concept of big cats that they, they just, they lie in such stillness 
most of the time. They're doing nothing. But when the bubble comes, there's no doubt that they they're ready to pounce. Like they're not just late. They're not lazy. They appear lazy. They're just sitting around. But when the moment like when the moment comes, they are ready. And so that's what I'm trying to be as a way to tell myself not to stress out too much about the race. Like I don't want to simulate it too many times in my head. Um, ugh, I've tried to have a balanced life over here. You know, I'm not just like obsessed about this race that's coming up, but my mind keeps going to it. And so I'm just like reminding myself, like, like maybe you're thinking about the race a little bit too much right now. And like, pretend you're a big cat that knows how to, hunt some prey but like it doesn't have to do that right now it's just relaxing right now and like you, you'll still be ready to do it when the time comes yeah you're full of gems buddy <clears throat> final question for you john and thanks so much for coming on the show and spending so much time this is our traditional closing question who is one person that you admire can be inside or outside of sports living or dead and why do you admire that person jackie robinson we have the same birthday so on my birthday, April 15th, everyone in Major League Baseball wears number 42 in honor of Jackie Robinson. He was a scrappy second baseman. That's what I wanted to be. <laughs> so I wanted to model my style of play after him. Uh, clearly breaking the color barrier was a pretty historic achievement. And the experience that he had to go through obviously has led to like the most epic storytelling. And it's like just amazing both physical and mental strength that he had to be really good at his sport, but he also had to be so mentally focused, restrained. Like he had to show like restraint in not fighting back was, was a big part of that story. Um, and it made it so much harder for him to perform, but he still was able to. And so that's the inspirational part of him as an athlete, but after his athletic career, he also was still very politically active in a way that like modern society cannot do where he like supported candidates on both in both of the major parties at different times in his life. Huh. Um, always that he was like pretty objective in his assessment of which candidates he believed in that would support the things that he cared about. It wasn't just voting on party lines and he so he was a good political advocate in his post-athletic career as well and so if i could live a life as good as jackie robinson clearly that'd be amazing I, i'm not gonna but he's, as the, a, he's the inspiration as i've heard you can turn a double play like jackie though can't you uh i mean like d3 college level <laughs> not not quite like mlb level but that was, that was that was my best my best skill well listen maybe maybe you'll be turning another double play next weekend obviously you won Havelina. we got black canyon coming up maybe there's an arizona double play maybe that could be your nickname john double play ray there, there we go <laughs> We'll keep, we'll keep, we'll keep we'll searching. Keep, keep workshopping it. <laughs> hey, well, John, it was so fun to spend time with you in Boulder last week. It's really fun to have you here on the podcast. I can't wait to see you race next weekend. Good luck in the, the final week. And we'll see you down there in Arizona. Yeah, we got you back on the Fairview campus. That was fun. <laughs> 20 years uh, later. Yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, really looking forward to it. It's great. Thank you to John, John Double Play, 
Ray. I don't think he likes that nickname, but it's just a placeholder for now until we come up with something better. Send your suggestions to me in Slack or in Instagram DMs if you have any. I'm a nickname guy. Again, if you haven't yet, go watch the training video that we did with John. It is live on the Free Trail YouTube channel and it gives you a great front row seat to a day in the life of one of the best pro athletes in the sport. Smash the subscribe button while you're there so we can keep you informed about our Black Canyon content coming later this week. Free Trail Pro members, of course, let me know what you thought. Drop your feedback in Slack. Always love hearing from you. And if you're not a member, you should absolutely sign up. It is only $10 a month, $96 for the year with tons of perks and benefits, including a weekly Zoom-based strength class that we're doing hosted by Free Trail Coach Hannah Allgood. It's a great value. Go sign up at freetrail.com. There's also a link in today's show notes. A big thank you to our sponsors, as always, Speedland, the presenting sponsor of this podcast, runspeedland.com, use code FREETRAIL10. We got a new product coming down the pipeline in just the next couple of weeks. Gnarly Nutrition, go gnarly.com, use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off these great nutrition products. Eight, uh, Osprey Packs, the leading pack brand globally, go check them out at osprey.com or at your favorite retailer. And finally, Rourke Apparel, Visit Rourke.com, R-O-A-R-K.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off these great running and lifestyle apparel products. Thank you all so much for listening. A lot of great guests and subjects scheduled here on the podcast in the near future. This week is going to be dominated by Black Canyon, but a lot more good stuff to come. We'll see you soon. Love you mucho. Bye-bye.